Good morning, this is Romans chapter 3 and 4, Bible study for the day, and it's titled God is Still Faithful. So last time we read that Paul wants the churches to know that when it comes to being Jewish, a true Jew is a person whose heart is right with God. Now Paul doesn't dismiss Jewish culture, he still sees great value in his heritage and still knows that God chose the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, to be set apart for God's work, to show God to the world. Uh, in this he says there is great value and I think it's so that any Jewish people who have become Christians don't feel worthless or awful about their culture and Paul himself loves his culture. But, but in verse 9 Paul reminds his readers that Jews and Gentiles, despite their you know, positive cultural things are still found to be sinful and are there for basically alike before God. Jews and Gentiles, everyone is lumped into this same verse. And if you read through Paul's quotation in verses 11 to 18, um, have a look through that and just, and just kind of reflect, how does that sit with our culture today? Do we see similarities? Do we see differences? Do we think that they're still correct or incorrect? And and the big verse that jumped out to me was that therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. And and having a law and having cultural rules and regulations to keep our society safe and protect people is a really good idea, obviously. And there is nothing wrong with obeying the rules that point out whether or not we are behaving in a right or wrong manner. But, and this is Paul's huge major point that he's desperate to get across to the readers in the Roman church, that you cannot give your life true value and righteousness before God simply by behaving in accordance to a law, nor can we earn our righteousness by doing, you know, all the church things today and by being good Christians as our culture might understand it. You might see great value in all our cultural Christian practices and these things might be great and they may provide some incredibly good things in our life stability and structure and good practices but simply by going to church singing songs and even by reading scripture that alone can't earn our salvation it can tell us about salvation but it can't earn us our salvation and that is all and only done through Christ if you look at chapter 3 verse 22 Paul says we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes. And then Paul builds on why. He begins to explain to the Romans and then to us that everyone has fallen short of God. And the word sin comes from the Greek hamartano, which means to miss the mark, like in archery. You're shooting for the bullseye and you're just a little bit off, or you're a lot off. And Paul is not claiming we are sinful in the same way we today might understand sin. I mean, he might be to a degree, um, but our culture understands sin. I think when we say sin, it immediately gives people this idea that they are evil, that they are rotten and terrible. Like they, they have no place, you know, if they're a sinner, they are a disgusting piece of refuge. We kind of under understand sin to mean an evil person like Hitler. I mean, that might be a bit extreme, but I think a lot of people in our culture do do hear that. If we say to people that we're sinners, they kind of think, but I'm not that bad. Paul lives in a world 
where the, the word sin can mean anything running from terrible, terrible person or simply a fairly decent person, but understanding that as a human being, you are still missed the mark. That hamartano, you've missed the mark. Even just a little bit. It doesn't mean that you, you know, are the worst. It just means you've missed the mark. It's not quite as aggressive as some people in our culture might understand it. And we have to understand that Paul lives in a world in which the Roman nation has decreed that their chief Caesar is the son of God. And we can assume by that they mean, they don't mean God in the Israelite sense. They probably mean a chief God such as Jupiter or some kind of divine force. And for Romans living to expand the state and please their Lord, that would bring glory to Rome and to Caesar. And Paul makes it clear that we can't earn our holiness. We have fallen short, be it a little or a lot, it doesn't matter. It is impossible to be made perfect before God by our own works. And obviously for the Romans, cultural Romans who are becoming Christians, that would be a huge challenge to understand that actually by you know conquering the world and bringing Romanness and bringing all things back to Caesar, who is son of Caesar, son of Caesar, who is a god, that that would be hard to hear. Actually, oh, wait a minute, this is not actually how we become right by God. There is something more to that. And then Paul gives thanks to God because God in his grace freely counts us as righteous in his sight when we believe in his son who died to take the penalty of sin. And we don't really have the extreme boldness of that sentence in our culture anymore. But for Paul to go to Rome and say that it is God's son, Jesus, who dies the death of a slave to take the penalty of sins, that is who you should be worshipping. You shouldn't be worshipping God's son, Caesar, who is using his power for political gain and conquest. Um, you need to believe in the son of God who died in service, not the son of God who lives to conquer. And today the church can fall into similar traps, believing that it must perform a certain way, and to be a Christian, you must do certain things that may be a little extra to what, you know, Jesus actually says is what we need to do to earn rightness before God. And perhaps we might have been encouraged to do certain things in church or to not do certain things in church to make ourselves right. And some of these things might be good. For instance, you might feel like you have to go to a summer camp when you're young. You have to go to these summer camps, you have to go there to meet the Holy Spirit, etc, etc. If there have been Catholics in our audience, you might have to go to Mass, you might have to take confession, you might have to never, ever, ever watch certain things or listen to certain things. And perhaps some of these things are extremely helpful or very unhelpful. But make no mistake about it, none of the things that our Western culture has put onto the church make us right with God. It is only the cross. So verse 28, it says, we are made right with God through faith and not obeying the law. And then in verse 31, in fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. And in this, Paul means that to truly fulfill the law means that we are holy before God and that God can truly walk among us. And that is only done through faith in Christ. Uh, take a couple of minutes. Is there anything in your life you feel you have to do or have to avoid? And is it something you have been told you must do to be a Christian? Is it something that you have been told you must never do or watch or listen or go to, or else you are not a Christian anymore? And just have a think, was it wise advice? Or is it like following a law that tries to make yourself right?
And that's not me being judgmental. It's just a time for you guys to reflect on whether or not there are things in your life that you have to do or whether or not there are things that they, they might be wise to do, but it doesn't earn your salvation. And we move on to Romans 4, where Paul goes on to talk about Abraham. And he talks about the faith of Abraham to his readers. And remember, this will be far more impactful to the Jews in Rome several thousand years ago than for us. But it is still extremely important. And Paul says that Abraham is the founder of the Jewish nation. And he discovered something important about being made right with God. So in Romans 4 verse 3, Abraham believed God and therefore God counted him as righteous. And that might sound like I'm repeating what we said from chapter 3, but remember, Abraham is like their George Washington to his readers. He is their founding father, their big example, and he's not simply repeating himself for the sake of it. He is framing his argument. Only faith in God actually makes one righteous. And then he gives them this example. Abraham, their patriarch of the Jewish nation, he was made right with God through faith. And if this isn't a hefty enough reason to listen to Paul, then he gives another example. He pulls out King David himself, king of Israel. In Romans 4, 7, he quotes David, who says, What joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven and whose sins are put out of sight. Because David knew he couldn't earn his way to God, but he understood that God in his mercy offered forgiveness and then wants us to do likewise to our fellow people. What joy for those who are forgiven. He doesn't say what joy for those who work hard and earn their forgiveness. Read forward a little bit if you've got time. Have a read of Romans 4 verse 9 to 21. And what stands out to you? What challenges you in your understanding of God's covenant and his promise? Paul needs to address the, the idea of circumcision. Because it's such a rite of passage for Jewish men and such an outward sign of being Jewish, being set apart, that for Paul to suggest that it's not necessary might seem extremely blasphemous to a lot of people. So if you look at verse 10, Paul asks his readers, was Abraham righteous before or after he was circumcised? And he says, clearly, God accepted Abraham before circumcision. The circumcision was simply a sign that he had faith. It was never a means to achieve faith. Paul explains that Abraham is the example and the father of nations, both to those who have faith and have not been circumcised, and to those who have. If faith makes one right, and faith comes first, then you don't need to work to have this faith, nor do you need to work to earn your righteousness before God. Sorry, that was exhausting to, to sum up. And, but Paul ties up all scripture from Genesis 2 to the time he's writing. Verse 17, he explains to his readers that this is what it means when God told Abraham, I've made you the father of many nations, the father of faith, whether Jewish or Gentile. And even from Genesis, the Bible is pointing towards what God is actually intending to do that happens on the cross. Bring all people back to him. And Abraham never lost hope. Even when he was very old, he still had hope in God's promise. He was convinced that God could and would do what he said he would do. And it may have taken a long time, but in Abraham's life, we see this kind of small one person example of God's like macro meta promise that Abraham will be the father of nations. God will be the God of all nations. Abraham has to wait for years and years. And then finally, God gives him a son when he's old. And if we bounce forward thousands of years, we see, yes, they've been waiting thousands and thousands of years, but at the right time, 
there was this fulfilment of God's promise done through Christ. God never wavered in his promises, even if it takes a while. And for us, we can take, I think, verse 24. It assures us that God will also count us righteous if we believe. And Romans, by this point, in the first four chapters, has tied together a grand and massive narrative that started thousands of years before he wrote it. He links God's promise to Abraham and expands on the promise to include all peoples of the earth through faith, not through culture or genetics or earnings. And a few verses that stood out for me include God counted Abraham as righteous because of his faith. The promise is received by faith. It is a free gift. And Abraham was fully convinced that God is able to do what he promises. The Bible, though it is a collection of books and poems and prophecies, is also one huge story of God working alongside Israel to reunite himself to humanity. And this is, of course, done through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus as both the sacrifice to make us right with God and as the mediator for us before God. And reading these letters has highlighted to me more and more that the Bible has to be read as part of one massive story with one clear and definite vision. God who loves us is working through his people to reconcile us back to where we began in Genesis, which is walking with God. Abraham was a long time ago, but through his descendants, through Israel, through Jesus from the line of David, an Israelite, God has made a way. And have a few moments. What stood out to you most? Um, do you read the Bible as part of one huge story? Did you realise that the Bible is one huge story and that all parts of it connect and reconnect and reflect and bounce off of, of each other? It all goes back and forth and back and forth. Have a think and let me know what you thought.